0: Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biyajo on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Wednesday, January 3rd, 2023. Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces signed a declaration with civilian politicians in Addis Ababa.
1: We are very glad they accepted our invitation. Spent two days talking, culminated in what we call Addis Declaration
0: also health facilities in South Sudan's Upper Nile State face numerous challenges.
2: In uh, Malakal town, we don't have even taxis. In the past, the town used to have taxis. The town used to have even mini buses. But
0: today they are not there. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. After eight months of a brutal conflict with the army, Sudan's paramilitary leader Mohammed Hamdan Dagulu said he is ready to end hostilities. On Tuesday, he signed the Addis Ababa Declaration alongside a civilian coalition known as Taqaddum. The Rapid Support Forces leader has agreed to immediate and unconditional ceasefire negotiations with the army. He also agreed to release more than 450 detainees facilitate unhindered humanitarian access and allow the establishment of a National Committee for the Protection of Civilians. The army has yet to respond to the agreement signed with Sudan's former Prime Minister, Abdul Hamdok, who leads the coalition. A signing ceremony and joint press statement were held in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa after two days of meetings. Dagalo said he came to the meeting for the sole purpose of signing an agreement that would lead to halting hostilities with the army. He says he only read this document yesterday, and that it was possible to read a document the day before and sign it today because he doesn't have an agenda. He says he saw the document included is stopping the war, which is what he's after. So there is that. If the army came with this same document, Dagalo says he would sign it immediately. He said he regrets the terrible toll the conflict has taken on civilians.
3: He says we apologize to
0: all our people in Sudan, in all its states, east, west, north, south and center, for all the violations that took place. Dagalog goes on to say the RSF is extending their hands for peace. He says nothing will make us leave Khartoum except peace. For his part, Hamdok appreciated Douglas' response to the civilians' call to have a dialogue about ending Sudan's conflict.
1: This two-day meeting was between the uh, coordination of the civilian uh, democratic forces and the rapid support forces. came as a result of the invitation that was sent by us in Tagadum, And we're very glad they accepted our invitation spent two
0: days talking, culminated in what we call Addis declaration. Hamdok said he and the RSF leader agreed to address the problem at the heart of Sudan's war, the presence of multiple armies in the country. In the declaration,
1: we agreed on the one army. There's no way Sudan would, uh, I think, stay as a peaceful country if we have this multiplicity of armies. So the aim
0: is to have one army. Today, Dagalo continued his regional tour and met with Kenyan President William Ruto at the State House in the capital, Nairobi, to, quote, advocate for a swift and substantive end to this war. Sudan's conflict has killed more than 10,000 people and displaced over 7 million people. The United States air rights groups have accused both sides of rights, abuses and war crimes committed in the course of the conflict. We move to South Sudan's Upper Nile State, where health authorities in Malakal have disclosed a number of challenges affecting service delivery in Upper Nile State health sector. The problems include broken down ambulances and shortages of medicines. Mamir Abraham Kord reports for VOA from Malakal.
4: Isaac Kwongo Ogilo is the director general of the Upper Nile State Ministry of Health. He says the state-owned ambulance is beyond repair, and as a result. Patients in Malakal often are brought to hospitals in wheelbarrows. Ogila warns the practice can aggravate health conditions and should be discouraged. So I myself
2: am among those who are really not comfortable with this. It is happening within Malakal town and even it is happening within the POC. In uh, Malakal town, we don't have even taxes. In the past, the town used to have taxes the town used to have even many buses but today they are not there the family resort to carrying their own beloved ones on this wheelbarrow sometimes carrying them even on the beds until they reach the health facility so it is very risky even those being carried on wheelbarrow you get even the the foot and legs are outside
4: so they can even be knocked uh, on the ground It says the state-run health sector lacks essential medicines, so patients often must buy drugs from pharmacies.
2: What we are missing is the essential and life-saving drugs. They are not in this component, and we end up prescribing to our patients so that they can buy on their own. And uh, with uh, the status of our people, because the state was really badly affected by war, Uh, Our patients and their uh, companions cannot even meet this requirement whereby we send them to buy these missing drug items.
4: Joseph Othiep is a 31-year-old father living at the Protection of Civilian Site, or POC. He says bringing patients in wheelbarrows and on beds from home to the hospitals is very difficult. He says... Even after the struggle to bring patients to the hospital in wheelbarrows or tuk-tuks, they often are given only acetaminophen or antibiotics. He says other medicines such as those needed for injections are not available in the government health facilities. Othep says most people cannot afford to buy medicine by themselves and sometimes they beg from friends to settle their medical bills. He also says... Anti-malarial and anti-inflammatory drugs are often not available in the hospital. You can get just amoxil tablet for asbenadol. Sometimes anticine is there, but uh, other medicine for injection, for example, antimalaria, the clofenic and other medicine, they are not available there. He hedges the government to supervise the non-profit groups operating in the health sector to ensure they carry out their duties properly. John Luong, the chairperson of Upper Nile Civil Society Forum, says there are no personal cars in Malakal except those owned by aid organisations. He says the few ambulances available belong to partners and they use them only at their facilities, not state facilities. Luong says a major challenge lies in the road networks. He says if the government clears bushy roads, people will be encouraged to start taxi businesses in Malakal town.
5: Seeing the crisis, the roads are now bushy. They are impassable.
4: If at all a tall business person brings a car
6: that intends for a business and could be hired by a family that have a sick person to take to hospital, that car will not have a way to pass to go and collect that uh, that sick person from
5: the house where it is. So it is now the government to deliver the service to the citizens.
4: Ogilo, the state health ministry's director general, says most health workers abandoned work at the ministry to look for greener pastures, leaving state hospitals to struggle. He says the ministry has now opened a health institute where health workers are being trained. He adds the state government is working on roads and the situation may improve soon. For VOA News, I am Amir Abramquad in Malakal.
0: Uganda has taken Kenya to the East African Court of Justice. This after Nairobi denied the neighboring country's government-owned oil marketer a license to operate locally and to handle fuel imports headed to Kampala. Local media report President Yuari Museveni accused Kenyan middlemen of being behind the high pumping prices in Kampala, even as global prices of the commodity continue to fall. Political analyst David Monda tells VOS Douglas Mpuga that this action presents a big challenge in terms of regional diplomacy.
3: On one hand, it, it shows big challenge in terms of uh, regional diplomacy because this is a, a black eye on good relations between the two neighbors. Uganda relies on Kenya for a lot of its imports. And also Kenya imports a lot of uh, goods and services from Uganda. So I think tensions between the two countries is not good, not only for bilateral relations, but also for regional issues. The other question here is Uganda's frustration with Kenyan middlemen, who the uh, Domseveni administration says are behind high pump prices in Uganda. And uh, I think he's really suing them. He's really pushing this in the public limelight and taking legal routes to actually get this question addressed it's not just been a problem in uganda it's also been a problem in kenya where kenyans are complaining of paying higher fuel prices than their neighbors yet they import this product uh, through kenya for example to uganda yet ugandans are paying less for fuel than kenya so it is a major diplomatic crisis but it's also something that uh, is a a legal problem that uh, the kenya government needs to address
7: Uh, It appears that the issue of middlemen inflating the prices of oil in the the region uh, is a a big one. It's definitely
3: a big one because, uh, as you can imagine, um, oil prices are fundamental to the functioning of uh, not just Uganda or Kenya's economy, but the global economy. When oil prices go up, the cost of other goods and services will automatically go up because uh, economies on the continent of Africa and in the world are really very heavily tied to the cost of oil. This is an an interesting case, but it's also going to put a spotlight on the uh, East African Court of Justice to really flex its hand in terms of uh, determining who are the bad players in this uh, oil, oil marketing saga. And I think it's an interesting move that the Museveni administration has played here to actually put Kenya on the spotlight in the regional court to answer for some of these these questions because if they sued through, say, a Ugandan court uh, or a Kenyan court, I don't think the impact would be as strong. So it's really interesting to see regional judicial bodies also being used to try and untangle this mess with the allegations of cartels raising
0: Ugandan oil prices unnecessarily. That's political analyst David Monda. He was speaking with VOA's Douglas Mpuga. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the three leading opposition candidates in last month's presidential election have said they will not file legal challenges to the election. Martin Fayulu... Dennis Mukwege and Moise Katumbe have all said they do not trust the constitutional court which would hear the case. The National Election Commission on Sunday declared incumbent President Felix Chizikede the the provisional winner with 73% of the vote. All three candidates and several other opposition contenders have called the vote fraudulent. The voting was marred by problems that forced the Election Commission to extend voting beyond the constitutional election date of December 20. The opposition leaders and some civil society groups are demanding a rerun due to extensive logistical problems that they said undermine the balloting. Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explains to VOA senior analyst Mohammed Ashinawi the reasons why many are rejecting the election
5: results. The Refusal by the opposition parties and members of civil society and indeed the wider Congolese public to accept these results has a strong basis in material fact. As far as a year before the elections, early warning signs were pointing to the country going through precisely what it's going through today. There were complaints about the composition and independence of the constitutional court. The nine judges on this court, and this is a very important court because it handles uh, election disputes, are all supporters, associates close to Chisekedi himself, all the nine judges. This was a major complaint that civil society organizations flagged on many occasions, but it was not addressed. So there's very little little trust and confidence that that court will handle those disputes properly and impartially. Secondly, the National Electoral uh, Commission, which is the other very important institution in the Congo, its composition, according to Congolese law, must at all times include representatives from opposition parties, from civil society, in addition to to the ruling party. That law was not respected. And so the entire structure of this commission is uh, subservient uh, to the executive, including the commission chief, uh, Denis Kadima. So go Going into these elections, there was very, very little confidence that that would be seen as uh, valid and representative of the wishes of the vast Congolese population would be respected. So, Paul, that was a thorough description
6: of what preceded the elections. How about the irregularities
5: claimed by both the opposition and some civil society organizations in the then we go into the uh, malpractices and the well-documented cases of massive fraud, and these have been highlighted by the bishops' uh, conference, the Senko, the Joint uh, Protestant Catholic Mission, which deployed over sixty thousand poll observers. It's the largest observer mission on the ground right now, and they've been producing daily reports. And those reports have shown that upwards of forty, sometimes even higher than fifty percent, of uh, the polling process was fraudulent, missing ballots ballots that were pre-ticked, ballots that were blank, especially in uh, cases of uh, in government controlled areas, massive uh, instances of faulty machines, registration of minors. The registration itself, the voter register, which uh, the National Election Commission has so far refused to publish, is riddled with problems. And there had been calls as far back as six months ago by the churches, by civil society, for an independent audit of the election register, because the massive cases of fraud misconduct and administrative chaos throughout those 75,000 polling stations in the country were almost identical to the problems that beset the country during the re- voter registration exercise some of those uh, registration centers were set up in military academies same thing happened in the election you had registration of minors especially in uh, government controlled areas this was the same thing that happened in the election you had blank ballots distributed in government controlled areas so the blotched registration process that ran from uh, December to April was a clear indicator that Congo was heading for the chaos that we have seen. Voting that continued for five days after the constitutionally stipulated date of December 20th. The church leaders, the bishops, have called on the election commission to account for those unconstitutional extensions. Where were they? How did it affect the results? What were the results of those polling stations that opened unconstitutionally for all those days? How many? people voted and so on these are questions and that's the reason why the bishops have questioned the validity of these results across numerous polling stations and have suggested that the widespread uh, irregularities and fraud and you know sheer chaos that has taken place in the country will affect the outcome regardless of what that outcome might be they have not indicated who actually won this election but what they've said and what I think would be very very important to take into consideration is that regardless Regardless of that outcome. This is a process that fell way below Congolese standards and which is basically has put the country in a position, which is a very dangerous position, where it is not known for certain whether the results being presented by SEMI in all these different areas actually reflect what happened in this particular election. That was Paul
0: Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA senior. آناليس محمد الشناوي Chad's military leader has appointed a former opposition leader and pro-democracy figure, says Masra, as prime minister in a new transitional government. Opposition and civil society groups are skeptical that Masra, who recently returned from exile, can convince military ruler Mohammed Idris Dabi to give up power. But Masra says his appointment does not stop him from making sure Chad carries out elections later this year and returns to civilian rule. Moki Edwin Kinzaka reports from neighboring Cameroon.
3: Minister of Foreign Affairs and Foreign
7: étrangers. Ambassador Mohamed Saleh Al-Nadif. Mohamed Ahmad al Secretary General of Chad's Presidency and a close aide of military ruler, General Mohamed Idris Debi, reads the names of members of a new government. Alabo says the new government who, he says, will prepare charge for return to civilian rule, was named after consultation with former opposition leader Success Masra, whom Debbie appointed as charge transitional prime minister on Monday. Masra replaced Saleh Kepzabu, a Debbie appointment, who served as prime minister for 14 months. On Sunday, Debbie said... He had accepted Kebzabo's resignation following the adoption of a new constitution. Last week Chad's Supreme Court approved the results of a referendum in which eighty five percent of Chadians voted in favour of the new document. Niotebi Bibi Valentine is president of the Njamina Headquartered African Party for Peace and Justice. Je <laughs> he says he does not believe Mohammed Idris Debi consulted with Masra before naming and installing a new government of 41 members on Tuesday. Netabi says before the new prime minister and his government were appointed, civil society and the political opposition, including Masra, asked Debi to reduce Chad's governments of transition by half. Netobe said a majority of the members of the transitional government appointed by Debbie are the military generals family and friends. Chad civil society groups say Masra and a few former opposition members in the new government will not be able to stop the military ruler from illegally continuing his family's autocratic rule. Davy's father Idris Deby Idnu ruled Chad for three decades before dying in April 2021 on the front lines of a fight against northern rebels. The younger Deby was to head a transitional council, but on October 8, 2022, he dissolved the council and declared himself interim president. Masra led thousands of civilians in street protests against what he called Deby's iron-fisted rule and his attempts to continue his father's dynasty. Rights groups report that security forces killed 50 people, injured 300, and arrested several hundred during the protests. Masra fled to the United States through neighboring Cameroon, but returned on November 3, after he reached an agreement with Debi, civil society groups say they were surprised when Masra started urging voters to take part in the constitutional referendum, which opposition groups called a sham to extend Debbie's rule. Church opposition says by accepting the Prime Minister's post, Masra has dashed the hopes of a majority of civilians who counted on his popularity to force the military junta to step aside. Masra says his appointment does not stop him from pressing for democratic elections for a return to constitutional order. La que nous faire... He says his immediate task is to convince teachers who have been refusing to work since October 2023 in protest of difficult working conditions and poor salaries. He says teachers should return to classrooms and work while he prepares a national dialogue with teachers because children's education is a fundamental human right and charts government priority. Masra said he will make sure living conditions of civilians are improved and the current fuel shortage is eased before the country holds elections in October of this year. The 40-year-old former opposition leader also says he will work closely with Debi to make sure the general amnesty granted to all civilians and military arrested during the October 2022 protest is fully implemented. Moki. Edwin Kinzuka, VOA News, Yaounde, Cameroon.
0: Malawi's government is sending young people to work on Israeli farms amid their conflict with Hamas. Critics say the program is shrouded in secrecy and has exposed unemployment issues in the country. Human rights activists argue that young men or young people are willing to take opportunities abroad despite the risks. Jim Padatha reports from the capital, Lilongwe.
6: Young people line up in large numbers at registration centers like this one for recruitment under a program that gives Malabians opportunities to work on farms in Israel They are hoping to join about 600 Malawians who have been airlifted to Israel through the agricultural program. A resident of Blantyre, the country's second-largest city, 23-year-old Ruth Kanchinjuru is ready for such an opportunity. It's
2: a lifetime opportunity. I wouldn't lose it because at some part of the country there is war.
6: As Israeli reservists have been called up for military service since the war with Hamas began in October... Malawi is not the only country Israel has been making labor exchange deals with to fill gaps created on farms. Kenya announced that it was sending 1,500 farm workers in December and Israeli officials said recruitment is underway in Uganda and Tanzania. But the labor exchange program in Malawi isn't without critics. Malawi Human Rights Defenders Coalition or HRDC, accuses the government of secrecy on the deal. Michael Kayata, the vice chairperson for the rights group, says they want access to information on Israel's treatment of foreign workers.
5: That's why it's important that uh details,
6: you know, like issues of safety, issues of pay, issues of conditions of service, you know, should be qualified so that people can make it from the, you know, decisions. In the next five years, Malawi's Labour Ministry says it plans to send at least 5,000 people to work in Israel's firms, but the figure could go as high as 15,000. Youth and Society, or YAS, rights organization, has demanded a clear policy position on the program, says its executive director,
5: Charles Kajoloega. There are no guidelines at the moment that uh, are facilitating or supporting the regulation of uh, this labour export. And the, what is more worrying is that the government is looking at these young people as commercial tools. Israeli
6: Ambassador Michael Lotem recently told a local publication that the labor export will benefit the two countries. But as of December 2023, a memorandum of understanding is yet to be signed. According to Malawi government spokesperson,
7: Moses Kunkuyun. The AMOU that we get to should also be uh, a, a guiding document in as far as uh, the operations of the agents on the ground are concerned. And young people get employment, they go to Israel work, and people come in and they start criticizing that uh, that process.
6: Through the labor exchange program, Malawi's government says it anticipates generating foreign exchange as young people get jobs abroad. VOA News, Lilongwe, Malawi.
0: And that's all we have for you this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out VOAAfrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Zaman Poruju by Emmanuel Kembe. I'm your host, Nabil Biajo, in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Gwen Uten, and engineer Andrade, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudanic Focus from the Voice of America.